Well, good morning, and if you don't know me, I'm Peter, and I'm the other half of a partnership which includes Liz, who has disappeared at this moment, but who was leading from the keyboard earlier. Okay? And we're beginning four weeks of some thoughts about the different aspects of prayer. And this happens to coincide with Lent, which begins on Wednesday, Shrove Tuesday on Tuesday, Lent on Wednesday, and for the first time that I can remember, the first day of Lent is also um, St. Valentine's Day, so how about that? Uh, Makes it difficult if you're planning a special meal on Valentine's Day when you're including two fast during Lent, but we'll leave that down. So during Lent, it's probably good for us to think about our relationship with God and in particular about our prayerful relationship with God. And so we've chosen for four weeks this acronym. Um, So ACTS stands for Adoration, which is what I'm going to talk about today, Confession, which Gary will talk about next week, Thanksgiving, which Nigel will take up the week after that, and finally Supplication, which Alan will deal with in another three weeks' time, making Um, a four-week block where we're talking about different aspects of prayer. We don't claim that ACTS covers every aspect of prayer, but it's perhaps a useful series of pegs on which we can hang our own practice of prayer. Uh, And the reason we're doing this is so that during Lent, we will be able to develop a prayer life which is perhaps deeper or more faceted than it was before. So let me tell you a story. It's about the man who went water skiing. And he'd never been water skiing before, and he really wasn't very good at it. And he hadn't checked his equipment. And the rope which was attaching him to the speedboat that was pulling him along was a bit frayed. So here's our water skier, not very good, with not very good equipment, travelling at a ridiculous speed across deep water, being towed by a motorboat. Got the picture in your mind? Okay. The rope frays, and the water skier, who incidentally, I forgot to mention, can't swim, (laughs) falls into the water. What happens? He cries out, Help me! Help me! Technically speaking, of course, that's not supplication. That's... What? Desperation. Desperation, yes, okay. (laughs) Petition. It's petition, not supplication. He calls out, save me. And it happens that on the beach, there is a qualified lifesaver. So our lifesaver dashes into the water and rescues him and brings him back to land. And our victim says, thank you. Thank you, because you've saved me. He goes on. I couldn't do it by myself. I was useless at swimming. I was going to die, but you've saved me. Thank you. Well, the life says, well, you look a bit miserable and wet. Why don't you put some towel around you? And why don't you come back to my place, and I'll find you some clean clothes and give you a nice hot meal. And, and so they go back to our lifesaver's home, um, and there... Our 
potentially drowned man meets the family and he, he recognizes that the, 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 the man who saved his life is actually, you know, the father of two adorable children and he's got a, 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 a lovely wife who's a good cook and he lives in a nice house with some nice paintings on the wall and, and um, uh, his, his CD collection contains uh, sort of nice choices of music. And our drowning man says... Look, I called out to you, and you rescued me because I was in need. But now I've come back to your home, and I've met you for real. I want you to understand that I admire you for who you are. Not just for what you did in rescuing me, but I admire you for being the person that you are. And that's where we are today, talking about Adoration. We're talking about our relationship with God based upon our understanding of who God is and what God is like, rather than what God has done for us. Get the difference? We'll cover the other things about what God has done for us in the other weeks. But today we're thinking about our relationship with God and our prayer life based upon our understanding of who God is and what God is like. Now, let me tell you a story. This is from the Bible. This is about King David when, uh, well he wasn't king at the time, when David was um, on the run he was in a town called Ziklag. Ziklag is very close to Beersheba. It's um, just a stone's throw from um, the Gaza territory that you'll see on the news at the moment. So it's in the sort of desert south of Israel. Uh, so David is on the run from King Saul because King Saul was going to um, apprehend and kill him. Now, the people who lived in that part of the land, the Philistines, had just rejected David and his followers who'd been in hiding among them. And then the Amalekites, who were the sort of um, uh, crusading invaders who wanted to take over that land, had attacked and captured David's wives and his children and David's followers. And if that wasn't enough of a problem for David, the remaining followers turned against him because they felt that he'd let him down and that let them down and that his strategy was wrong. So David is in a pretty low place. And the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I wonder what he did to encourage himself in the Lord his God. And if you and I are in situations where we feel at rock bottom, how do we encourage ourselves in the Lord our God? Well, I think David probably did two things. He thought about the character of God... And he probably made a list of all the things that God had done in the past, demonstrating his character and his faithfulness. We can do something very similar. Because we've got the book of Psalms where we can see very much how David thought and what the... Um, the style of his worship to God was. And what we discover when we look in the book of Psalms, that it wouldn't be a sermon from an ex-English teacher if there wasn't a few long words. So, um, <clears throat> David's writing in the Psalms, as we'll see, is a balance between an understanding of the transcendence of God and an understanding of the imminence of God. Now, are you with me? Transcendence is when we look at God and we say, wow, you are so different from me. 
I keep my distance. I'm in awe, or the old-fashioned versions of the Bible said, the fear of the Lord. Fear gives the wrong impression. It's awe. It's being dazzled by the otherness of God. That's transcendence. But as we well know as Christians, that's only half the story because we also can relate to the imminence of God, the closeness of God, the intimacy that we know with God. Because as Jesus told us, we're entitled to call God Abba, Father, Daddy. So we have the two things at once and we have them in David's writing in the Psalms and we have them in our own relationship of adoration with God. The sense that God is out there, bigger than us, amazing, distant. And the sense that God is close, intimate, transcendence and imminence. So here's a psalm that David wrote. These are uh, the first verses from Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness and so on. Let's look at those words closely. What, what do they tell us about God? Well, this is to do with God's imminence, God's closeness to us. It's he who made us. We're his people. We can call him Abba, Father. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. There's a sense in Psalm 100 of being close to God. And God being good for us in the closeness of that relationship. Imminence. Let's look at another psalm. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. And so on. Look at the words in this psalms. Glory, heavens, moon and stars. This is about God being out there. The God who created everything. Not the God who is close to us, but the God who is out there. A God of bigness, the God of creation. Psalm 8. Let's look at another psalm. This is Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So great is his love that he's removed our transgressions from us as a father has compassion on his children. This is the imminence of God. This is the closeness of God. And you would not be alone if you got particular comfort from this psalm. Because it tells us what God has done with our sins. He's removed them from us and from him. He has no memory of them. This is a psalm that celebrates a God of love and a God of forgiveness. Just one more psalm. This is Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. This is a psalm about the transcendence of God, the greatness of God, the bigness of God, the powerfulness of God as seen in his creation. Fantastic stuff, the Psalms. And they lead us into an understanding of God who is big and God who is close. 
But of course, we've got more. We've got more that David never had because we have an understanding from the New Testament of how Jesus reflects the eminence and the transcendence of God. So here's Hebrews chapter 1. David, of course, never saw these words. But we today, we can celebrate that God that, how can I put it, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation from God. God spoke to us in different ways in the past, says the writer to Hebrews. But now, his final word, his ultimate declaration of himself is in Jesus. And this passage gives us lots of reasons to worship Jesus as the one who made the universe. He is the expression of God's glory. He represents God in every way. Jesus is God. Jesus is glorious. And in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul deals with very much the same thing. Here he's talking about the fact that Jesus is at the center of everything. All things were created by him. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of as the first person to be raised from the dead. He has the supremacy. God's fullness dwells in him. There's stuff here about Jesus, which reminds us, if you like, of his transcendence, rather than his closeness, of his glory. There's material here that enables us to turn in adoration to God. Let me tell you another story. There will be five stories. This is number three. Okay. Let's go back to... Have you noticed, as you come into church, above the door, there is a plaque that gives the date that this building was built. Any ideas? 1765 was my house down the road. That was the original Baptist church. This is the second Baptist church. 18, we're doing well, 18. 1834, in fact, 1834, uh, just before um, Victoria's reign. Now, in 1834, the sort of songs that you would sing at church were not written by the Wren Collective or by Stephen Townend, or um, uh, Matt um, Stuart Townend, or Matt, Matt um, Redman, um, the trendy hymn writer of the day in in 1834 was Josiah Conder, and he wrote this hymn. We'll get there in a minute. He wrote this hymn. It's very small print, but I wanted to get it all on one sheet. You may know this hymn. It's still in existence. If you go to Keswick, you might sing it, but. It's not, it's not one that most churches sing these days because it's full of these and thous and it's a bit sort of antiquated in its style. But if you can get beyond that, get beyond the these and thous, look at what this hymn says about Jesus. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. The chorus goes like this. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou, that every knee to thee should bow. Now, we may not be in the habit of praying or singing with lots of these and thous these days. 
But what Josiah Conder put into words, which would have been absolute top of the pops when this church was opened in 1834. Don't those words sum up the spirit of what we want to say to God and to Jesus in prayer of adoration? Worthy art thou, O Lamb of God. Okay, the style of music may have changed, but the sentiment behind it is still valid. So the whole point of this sermon is to enable us to find ways to reflect back to God in prayer our appreciation and our understanding of who he is, his personality, his greatness, his closeness, and the majesty which God the Father has given to Jesus, his son, as the everlasting word. i just leave it there for a minute because I think that there's, some, there's some beautiful words there, uh, admittedly in a somewhat ancient style. Now let me tell you another story. Number four. Okay. This is about me when I was 18 years old. So um, at the age of 18, well, I'd, I'd just finished my A-levels, I'd just been baptised, and I was going off to uh, university. And uh, so I went to university, and I joined the Christian Union, and then I discovered that there were Christians at college with me who came from an entirely different sort of church background. Their faith was exactly the same as mine, but particularly those who'd come from an Anglican background were very used to formal prayers, liturgical prayers, which I'd never come across in the church tradition where I was brought up. Nobody even said the Lord's Prayer, let alone any, uh, any other written and scripted prayers. Um, impromptu prayer was the only sort of prayer that we practiced. And I got to university... And I discovered that people whose faith was as genuine and as valid as mine, as, as mine, but had come from a different background, were praying to the same God, but in a different way. They were using uh, prayer out of the, uh, the prayer book or prayers from the saints of the past. And this opened up for me an entirely new area of understanding. And I'm just sort of dangling it in front of you. If you've never tried praying a liturgical prayer from the prayer book, you could try it. It would broaden out your experience of prayer. Now, when I went up to university in 1964, um, modern changes in Anglican liturgy had not happened. And so the only version of prayers that were available were the ones written in 1662 in the, uh, the, the prayer book, um, and so one of, the, one of the ones that comes up in Matins, if you've ever been to Matins in an Anglican church, is this called the Te Deum. We praise thee, O God. And I, I just want you to look at the words of this. Okay, it's full of these and thous and long, you know, it's not expressed in the way that we might these days. But look at what it says about God. Look at how it gives us a chance to find words to tell God how we appreciate um, so many aspects of his character. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry. It's, it's 
mouth-filling stuff, okay, it may not be your cup of tea. You may prefer um, words which are a little bit more 20th century. But the point I'm trying to make is we can all extend our style of adoration by going back to the scriptures and perhaps also extending our prayers from being just prayers that we invent ourselves, extemporary prayers, to prayers that um, incorporate some of the big prayers of the past. Let me tell you a final story. This could be any married couple, but for the sake of just giving them, a, you know, we'll call them Peter and Liz, but they may not, you know, they may not be Peter and Liz, but Peter and Liz may, for example, um, just have had a, one of them a 75th um, birthday just last week. And they may have had a conversation like this. Aren't you going to say happy birthday to me? Yeah, 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 I was getting round to it, yes. Happy birthday. Do you love me? What a steady question is that. Of course, Eddie, we've been married 52 years. <laughs> Why don't you say you love me? Well, you know I do. I'm, I told you I loved you once. It was 52 years ago. It was, the day we, <laughs> it was the day we got married. I don't need to keep on repeating it. You know it. I think you get the point. Some of us may have been Christians for years. Perhaps God doesn't need, perhaps God is, com I mean, God is complete in himself. Perhaps God doesn't need our expressions of love to feel complete. But here's the point. We need those expressions of love and adoration to God in order to remind ourselves of our relationship with him and to be complete as Christians, we need to learn afresh that adoration is part of our prayer life. Charles Wesley wrote these words about being lost in wonder, love, and praise. And to be honest, those of us who are in nonconformity in, in Baptist circles, we're not very good at it. Because um, most of the time, if we say, shall we pray, you know what happens? We have a shopping list of things to pray about. And we sort of skip over the bit where we bother to tell God what we appreciate about him. And we go straight into the list of things that we want him to do for us. Now, as we will discover in three weeks' time, prayers of petition and supplication are fine. They are part of the deal. But they are not the complete deal. Because the complete deal involves confession next week, thanksgiving the week after next, and adoration which is what we've been talking about today. So let's conclude that we want our prayer lives as God's followers today to reflect the vibrancy and the depth of our relationship with him, our understanding of him, our appreciation of his goodness and greatness and closeness. You can answer the phone now, it's fine. <laughs>